History This Week, April 22, 1970. I'm Sally Helm. Hundreds of people are in a college auditorium in Providence, Rhode Island, at a teach-in. The subject? Death and destruction. This planet is threatened with destruction, and we who live in it with death. The speaker is a noted ecologist, and this is not his only speech of the day. In fact, he's booked at four different colleges to give roughly the same speech. And there are hundreds of people like him deployed all over the country, talking to crowds of people about how the human race is facing a crisis. The occasion is a massive, unprecedented mobilization. Nearly 20 million people show up across the U.S. for... Earth Day, a question of survival, with CBS News correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide... That evening, CBS aired this special report to cover the day. They described events taking place across the country. In Minneapolis, demonstrators carried a coffin filled with electrical appliances that they said were unnecessary. In Council Bluffs, Iowa, a teacher took her class on a hike to see a lake. She used to swim in it as a kid, but she said it had become so polluted that the kids can't swim in there anymore. There were marches, speeches, meetings, protests. Earth Day events drew even bigger crowds than the organizers had dared to hope for. But in that CBS report, Walter Cronkite says the day fell short of expectations in one particular way. It did not unite. It did attract that broad cross-section of America its sponsors wanted. Not quite. Its demonstrators were predominantly young, predominantly white, predominantly anti-Nixon. Some people at the time thought that Earth Day looked like a lefty, hippie, environmentalist thing. Which, in many ways, it was. You know, college students were holding hand-drawn pictures of the Earth and singing songs from the musical Hair on their campus quads. And yet, in the wake of Earth Day, the Nixon White House created the Environmental Protection Agency. And the president signed some of the most important laws the country has ever passed about pollution. The nation had already begun to wake up to pollution throughout the 60s, and so a lot of things went into this shift. But looking back, many historians say that Earth Day was the defining moment. It helped spark unprecedented bipartisan action. Today, how did that first ever Earth Day bring a huge number of Americans from across the political spectrum out into the streets? And what might it take to unite the country that way again? For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today.
In the decades before Earth Day, people started to notice something disconcerting. It was getting worse every year. Pollution. New kinds, everywhere. They could see it and feel it and smell it and taste it. I think the biggest thing for all of us was, my God, this is happening everywhere. Jerry Udelson grew up on the outskirts of Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. And during his childhood in the 50s, post-World War II, the economy was booming. Lots of production, people moving to beautiful Southern California. And in his home city of L.A. These wispy tendrils of smog started to creep into the valley on occasions. But I think that was the prevailing sentiment at the time was, that's the price of progress. Udelson grew up going to the beach. And that was another place he felt pollution all around him. Oil would seep from the ocean floor, and when it hit the cold water of the ocean, it would form these little tar balls, we used to call them, and it would get on your feet. And so my mother, who was a a nurse, when we got home, she would take each of us, uh, five kids, and, you know, take some alcohol and cotton gauze and clean our feet. As a teenager, he'd go sailing with his friends in Long Beach Harbor we would know there was a place you had to avoid because that's where the sewage bubbled up inside the harbor. And it was rank. So this was the world that Jerry Udelson was growing up in. But he didn't think of pollution as a political issue. He grew up in a mixed political household. His mom was a Kennedy Democrat. His dad was a Nixon Republican. And as a teenager, at least, Jerry wasn't that into politics at all. As he got older, though, he did feel like pollution was getting worse and worse. 180 days a year of stage one alerts. Stage one means unhealthy air. So every other day in Los Angeles was unhealthy and you couldn't see but a few hundred yards. We talked about all this with Adam Rome. He's an environmental historian. He wrote a book about the first Earth Day. And he said... In the 50s and 60s, there were way fewer environmental regulations than there are now. It was okay to leave junked cars on the riverbank. Factories were allowed to kind of just pour their waste wherever they wanted. The regulations hadn't caught up because this scale of pollution was new. We had all kinds of new technologies that were mostly described as wonders. They created the ability to do all kinds of things bigger, better, faster. They made the country much more affluent and powerful. But there started to be all kinds of new hazards. Things like acid rain or pesticides that had these unexpected side effects. Like, one Thanksgiving, all the cranberries got contaminated, so no one could eat them. And the air pollution wasn't just bad in L.A. There's some famous photos of Pittsburgh. It'd be in the middle of the day, and it would look like an eclipse, you know, or it would look like you were in the middle of of an unbelievable rainstorm because it was just black at noon. No matter where you lived, pollution was right outside your door. In fact, sometimes it was inside, too. In a lot of suburbs like Levittown, You know, people by the late 50s would turn on their faucets and detergent foam would come out. That was a problem with the septic tanks contaminating the water wells. But in any case, 
Over the 50s and 60s, pollution becomes a national problem. But the environment is not a political issue. Environmentalism kind of hasn't been invented yet. In the 1968 election, pollution did not come up. Neither Richard Nixon, who won, nor Hubert Humphrey, who lost, ever talked about the environment. It wasn't a national priority to do anything about it. (laughs) But there is one person in Washington who starts sounding the alarm. The Democratic senator from Wisconsin, Gaylord Nelson. He'd grown up in this little town in northwest Wisconsin that you couldn't make up the name of it. It's called Clear Lake. And he spent a huge amount of time outdoors. And in the late 50s, he becomes convinced that the next generation might not be able to enjoy the outdoors the way he had. Gaylord Nelson is the canary in the coal mine. He starts saying, guys, I think we should be talking about the environment. Anyone with me? He tries all through the 60s in all kinds of ways. And he fails again and again and again, but he never gives up. And he gets more and more desperate as the decade goes on. The problems seem to be getting greater, but there's just no sense of urgency. And then in 1969, there's a disaster, an oil spill. An offshore oil platform off the coast of Santa Barbara, California, sprang a leak. And so this incredibly beautiful beach in California becomes slicked with oil. It was the first horrible oil spill in the U.S. and the first one that people see on television as well as read about in their newspaper or hear about on the radio. And so these images become iconic. Jerry Udelson saw those pictures. Seabirds slicked in oil. This was right near where he grew up. He was an engineering student at the time. And he said he had begun to feel this sense that pollution was a problem that needed to be solved. And here was a shocking example. But there was no environmental movement, nothing he could really join. So he felt sort of alone with this nagging sense that the world was on fire, literally. On the nightly news, you could see in Cleveland, the Cuyahoga River was on fire from pollution. And I was studying this stuff, so I couldn't deny what I was starting to learn. I began to say, wow, there's something going on here that is not right. Senator Gaylord Nelson also sees those images of the Cuyahoga River burning, of sea lions covered in oil. And in fact, after the oil spill, he goes out to California to witness the damage firsthand. And on the plane back, he's reading about the, a tactic that the anti-Vietnam War movement had used about five years before called a teach-in. The teach-ins were meetings on college campuses where the opponents of the war and the supporters of the war would argue. Then he says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to organize a nationwide environmental teach-in sometime in spring 1970. When he gets back to Washington, he sets up an organization to work on this. It has kind of a clunky name, Environmental Teach-In, Inc. He was, as a senator, renowned for his ability to reach across the aisle. So one of the very first things he did after he created this Environmental Teach-In, Inc., It had a steering committee, and he found a liberal Republican from California to be the co-chair with him, 
And it wasn't that hard to convince him. There were many, many Republicans, as well as most Democrats, that recognized that the country faced really serious environmental problems. They weren't going away. They differed about exactly what should be done, but they didn't disagree that the problems were there and that they were real and that they needed to be addressed in some fashion. And Nelson wants to address them with this idea borrowed from anti-war protesters, the teach-in. But... He's a 53-year-old senator. He's a pillar of the establishment. He's not some young radster. He doesn't really know how to do this. He gets some advice from a Washington political consultant who says, you know, you should pick places to have the teach-ins, figure out who's going to talk. And one of the many brilliant things that he does is to reject that advice. Instead, Gaylord Nelson decides anyone who wants to have a teach-in can. And he hires this 20-something guy to organize the whole thing, a graduate student named Dennis Hayes. Hayes hires a bunch of other radical young activists, and they're all working for this organization Nelson founded. But he essentially gives them free reign. One of the first things they do is they decide Environmental Teach-In Inc. just isn't going to cut it as a name. They come up with something else, something simpler. Earth Day. And this just blows me away. They didn't say, Senator, is it okay if we change the name of your thing from Teach-In to Earth Day? They just did it. And they took out a full-page ad in the New York Times, January 18th, 1970. And the top of it, in the biggest letters that I've ever seen in the newspaper, just says, April 22nd, Earth Day. Does Senator Nelson hear about it before he opens the paper? Or does he just open it and say, oh, oh, I guess it's called Earth Day now? As far as I know, he does, doesn't know about exactly until he <laughs> looks at the New York Times. This event gets a lot of media coverage and people start getting interested. Remember, anyone could organize an event on their campus or in their town. So a lot of people did. 1,500 colleges start organizing, 10,000 other schools. Some of them plan these really sober, serious events. Senators and scientists giving speeches in auditoriums. But there are also middle school students who seem to have spent a lot of time coming up with the acronym for their event. Goo, get oil out. Yuck, youth uncovering crud. All of it is welcome on Earth Day. When I first heard about Earth Day, I said, you know, this sounds like something that I should do. Jerry Udelson is, at this point, a graduate student at the California Institute of Technology. And he's become more and more convinced that something needs to change. His campus is on the conservative side, but he thinks, you know what, I'm going to put something together for Earth Day. He doesn't have a ton of organizing experience. When I was an undergraduate, I promoted a concert by Judy Collins, the folk singer. So, you know, I kind of knew how to put things together. He gets a handful of students to work with him on it. They find an abandoned office, start calling other campuses. They recruit their congressman to give a speech, set up some faculty panels. They actually ask some oil companies to come talk about energy and the environment. They want all viewpoints represented. It's a lot of work. And remember, there's no email. There's no cell phones. There's no personal computers. There's no cheap copiers or printers. All of this is you pick up the phone and hope somebody answers on the other end. I don't even think answering machines have come in yet. Udelson doesn't think a lot of people are going to show up. Most students and faculty on his campus aren't the Earth Day activist types. 
When the day arrives, he and his fellow organizers set up these booths on the main quad, hoping to draw at least a few people. It's a beautiful day, one of the rare non-smoggy days in LA. And people start showing up. A trickle at first, and then hundreds. People started coming in from the community. I'm like, wow, this thing had started as just an idea six months ago, and now all of a sudden hundreds of people were out learning stuff and talking to each other. And then we had these big lines of black balloons that floated up that were supposed to signify pollution. And lots of people came out and politicians not may not know a lot of things, but they do know how to count. And, and when they see lots of people, they say, oh, there's something here. The numbers across the country are staggering. Nearly 20 million people go to an Earth Day event, about 10% of the U.S. population. We're talking about an order of magnitude bigger than any of the other kinds of protests or demonstrations or social movement activities of the 60s. Adam Rome told us the government took notice. Congress was actually closed on Earth Day because two-thirds of the representatives were speaking at events in their communities. Red state, blue state, purple state, Birmingham, Alabama had a week-long thing called Right to Live Week. And at the time, Birmingham's air was the second most polluted in the country. And the Earth Day activities there ended up basically about how bad the air was and how they had the power to change that if they wanted and daring them to do it. And a year later, the state of Alabama did pass a stronger anti-air pollution law. Alabama wasn't alone. That evening on the CBS News special, Walter Cronkite reports that Nixon's White House issued this statement. Today's event should be, quote, A beginning of a new and sustained public commitment to the environment, unquote. It sounds like a politician's platitude that might end up meaning nothing. But in this case, it proved true. In really intense, unprecedented national dialogue about how serious are these problems? What do I want to do about it? What does the government need to do about it? What would business need to do about it? What am I willing to sacrifice, if anything, to see a solution? And Gaylord Nelson got what he wanted. There was a mass demand by citizens for strong action to protect the environment. And politicians listened. The creation of the EPA, December 1970, eight months after Earth Day. The Clean Air Act, December 1970, eight months after Earth Day. The Clean Water Act, 1972. Virtually every major act that still governs our relationship with the environment comes in the wake of Earth Day. Nixon's White House is leading the way. All of this happens with bipartisan support. And it has an enormous impact. There's no city that you would just see full of smoke anymore. In some ways, the recovery of the rivers is even more amazing. Now, the Cuyahoga River is one of the prides of Cleveland. You can fish there again. All kinds of aquatic and animal life have come back to the river. And that's true in a lot of other places across the country. Rome said an underrated result of Earth Day activism was that it helped create a whole new eco-infrastructure, like environmental studies programs and whole new careers. For Jerry Udelson, Earth Day totally changed his path. I dropped out of school. I wanted to become an environmental activist. And I've been engaged in this my whole life. Udelson has seen his activism get results. In many communities all over the country, pollution is not the problem it was in 1970. 
You can't see it the way you used to, or smell it, or taste it, or breathe it. Of course, this is especially true in affluent areas. Many people and politicians seem only too willing to ignore pollution that isn't in their own rivers and in their own air. In fact, Adam Rome told us that the local nature of the problem in 1970, that was what made this mass movement possible. Everyone could see what was happening, and they turned out. The numbers on Earth Day spoke for themselves. Udelson says that now, 50 years later, the problems are harder to see. In fact, as a young activist, he couldn't have pictured them. We had no idea the full extent of the problem, how embedded pollution was into the economic system. So a lot of the issues have gotten a lot more subtle. We have on top of that, obviously, is global climate change, which we had no idea about at the first Earth Day. What global climate change has done now is to say, whoa, climate change has to be addressed globally. A lot of people already see climate change right outside their door. But for other people, it still feels far away. Udelson says it's just going to keep coming closer and closer, affecting more and more people and more and more politicians. Maybe coastal homes will be a thing of the past because no one will insure them. Maybe certain crops won't be able to grow. No more coffee. Udelson says at some point, everyone will feel that the problems are local, like they did in 1970. And those who marched today, and those who slept, and those who scorned, are in this thing together. Walter Cronkite ended his famous CBS special with that thought. Whether you feel it or not, the problem affects everyone. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.